Um, great. We're going to get started again. 12.15 is a goal. I have you. We'll be done. I shared a lot in that first session. In one sense, it was to kind of prepare us for everything that's going to come now and even Sunday. Uh, not sure how far I'll get along in those verses all the way to verse 17. Somehow I'll get them in there, even if it's in a Q&A time. I may just have like many sessions as I answer some of your questions um, that are there. But let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, and understand what God is telling us there in Colossians 3. You know, obviously we've already said that we need to be motivated properly and by the things of the Lord. And I want us to grasp this as best we can. Uh, people are motivated by things that are good, things that are bad, but nonetheless there's a motivation, you know, behind it. Interesting, I wanted to give you some stats of someone that is most definitely motivated. I mean, uh, no doubt one of the most motivated people, uh, I guess you could say, in history is this. So when we think about motivation when it comes to accomplishing goals and we we have to all agree that this is the greatest goal in the universe this is the greatest calling ever to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and so what is going to move us ahead well you probably can figure out the name but let me give you some stats to see if you can get the stats with the name this person spends the majority of his time training in the pool. In the pool, he swims 80 kilometers a week, giving him an incredible 13 kilometers of swimming each day. His sample workout looks like this, warm up. Six times he does 50 free, 50 sidekicks, 50 fly drills, 50 pool boys, 50 intermediates, 20 times he does 100 on a minute and 15, 25 flies, 50 free, 25 flies. Then he does 500 strokes of 50 kicks and 50 drills. His main set, um, 2,000 time kick strokes. And then what else does he do? Four by 100 intermediate drill continues. Then he does something called a pulling set. 10 times 100 on 300, meet, 300 minutes, for 300 minutes. And then he does a speed set. He does 24 by 25 flies at 30 seconds each. One of them he calls, one what he calls an easy drill, one he has no breath, so, and one is a sprint. Then at the end of practice, he does 500 abdominal exercises in static stretching. I mean, just that last part, the 500 abs, just leave that alone, right? Just to do that. Who is this person? Michael Phelps. Think about that. He was swimming at his peak 80 kilometers a week, swimming that far. Think about swimming 13 kilometers a day, just swimming. And then you finish this workout by doing 500 ab exercises. Why? Because he was what? Motivated. 
and now he will be considered the greatest Olympian of all time. Yeah, motivation had him there. There was someone else that was motivated as well. Uh, John Bassalone fought in World War II, highly decorated. If you go to Camp Pendleton on the Marine base in um, California, you'll see John Bassalone Street. You'll see other things named after him as he fought heroically in World War II. Amazing when you think about his life and what he did. Why? He was motivated. For him, the motivation was different. He wasn't thinking about, you know, receiving any medals, which he did. He wasn't seeking, thinking about one day a street would be named after him and books be written about him and documentaries about him in the battle um, in the Pacific or even the battle in D-Day. But he was motivated. His motivation was, I believe, in this country. I'm going to fight for it. He was also motivated to protect those that fought with him. So he realized that if he fought bravely, he might protect the men, that man that was next to him, or that man that was behind him, or the man that was in front of him, there was motivation. And so again, we have to be motivated properly. More than a Mark Michael Phelps, if you will, but our efforts are somewhere else. Equal to a John Bassalon, we're thinking about the lives of people. He thought about them in a physical sense. He didn't want his comrades to be taken out, we should be thinking about them in a spiritual sense. We don't want people facing eternal separation from God. So we have to be motivated to live the Christian life because as we live the Christian life, people can look to us and there will be an example. Let me give you a thought from the words of Robert Murray McShane, man of the past, godly individual. And it's something that has stuck with me since I first came across this quote. I mean, it's been now, it was the beginning of this year, just reading some material about him. I was writing something that dealt with the topic of godliness. And he said this, he said, a Christian is someone who makes it easy to believe in God. Think about that for a moment. A Christian is someone who makes it easy to believe in God. And so as we live our Christian life, that's what we want. We want people to look to us and say, you make God believable. As opposed to, come on, you're not a Christian, really. Come on. You're kidding me. Or if this is Christianity, why should I want anything of that? Or if this is the God you say that you serve, and you serve him the way in which you do, I'm not sure if I want to serve that God. Oh, I get it. Christianity is you can live this way on these days of the week, so you can live that way on that day of the week. Okay, I like that sort of God that allows that. Maybe I will serve him. So we need to be motivated to live the Christian life the way it's given to us in Scripture. And so if we're going to do that, it means that we look to Christ as our example. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3 and see if we can gain some more motivation. So a couple of things that we need to understand. And we're going to finish up verse 4 and then dive into the big picture that we see starting in verse 5. So what we must do is look to Christ. We've been raised. Seek the things above. Christ is seated. We see this great picture that's communicated because of Christ's exalted status. And then he says in verse 2, set your mind on things 
above, not on the things that are on the earth. So set, that is to be fixed on. We know that our minds can at times often be distracted. And the world wants to distract our minds, does it not? Every time you wake up in the morning, there's something that wants to distract you from the cause of Christ. So it says you need to be having your minds fixed on the things above. Colossians, not these things that are here. And in order to have our minds fixed on something, it means that it must be more um, attractive than what is offered here. Think with me for a moment. It's the picture that we gave one of my favorite verses in Psalm 27, where the psalmist says in 27.4 that he wants to behold the beauty of God and to meditate in his temple. And what's interesting in that word behold, it means to be fixed on. It means to have a, a chain gaze. And I, and I love the idea of a chain gaze. Because think with me for a moment. And even that, that uh, the sense in which the wording we use to translate it, or some might translate it to not only behold, to have a chain gaze on God. So when we think about gazing at something, it means that we, we look at it almost to the point we stare at it. It has our attention. And when you add the idea of a chain gaze, we don't use that often, say a chain gaze, and literally something that is chained. And the reason that phrase is sort of used is to say that. It's not just a gaze, but it's chained. You're going nowhere. Or you might even say it's a constrained gaze. Now, I have a question for you. Uh, all the married folks that are here, raise your hand, Mary, if you're married. Okay, question for you. All right, guys, this is a question to guys. First to the guys. Okay, did you have, how many of you had a traditional wedding where your wife came down the aisle? Because you may not have. You may have done something like got married, you know, jumping out of a plane or something like that, like people do nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay, traditional marriage. She's coming down the aisle. The question is, what does everyone, including you, do when she starts walking down the aisle? Someone, someone, you can say it out loud. Right, you gaze, right, do you not? And recently, I've, I think in the last three months, I think, I, well, in the last, yeah, five months, I've done about four weddings. And I noticed the guys, and everyone, when she starts on now, everyone does what? Stand, and what do they look? They shouldn't be looking at their cell phone, right? They shouldn't be looking, no one looks at the groom. When she's coming down, no one says, man, that is a sharp tuxedo you have on. That, those colors really complement you really well. Where'd you get it? No one does that, right? Everyone does what? He's there. Everyone does. And then he, even if she's coming down, they do what? Follow her, do they not? Then everyone is here like that. And I've seen the look on the guy's faces. You know, he'll, he's, he's going to be here with me. And she's coming down the aisle. And when she comes... You know, he'll start, I see him start to twitch a little bit sometimes. He's like, wow, I'm about to be married. And she looks so good. He's like, skip the ceremony. Let's get out of here, right? <laughs> You're fixed on it. You behold it. You're chained to that. Because you say, in this moment right now, she is so attractive. Everyone's saying that. She is so attractive. And you don't want to look anywhere else. He says, set your mind on. So if you take this idea from even the Old Testament to behold the beauty of God, Paul has already told us that we should look 
to where Christ is at the right hand of God, nothing is as attractive as God. It's Christ. And Paul has proven his point. Remember again how many times he said in all those 95 verses, Christ, 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 Christ. All those images that I gave you earlier and what Christ is, nothing as, is as attractive as God. So set your mind on things above where Christ is. What is above? Then there's grace that is above. What is above? There's mercy above. What is above? The realization that one day this will be my home. That is above. What is above? The, the righteous standard of God. Not this self-righteous standard of man that these false teachers are proposing. What is above? Freedom is above. Not these constraints that these false teachers are trying to put on me. I have freedom in Christ. That's above. So he says, make sure that your mind is fixed on those things. Now, what does the world want us to do? The world wants us to do what? Here's Christ coming down the aisle. The world wants us to do what? Look elsewhere, does it not? It's temptations every day. So instead of having our mind fixed there, it wants us to fix it somewhere else. Not on things in heaven. Then notice what he says in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he amplifies the security of our faith. What is important is this statement, for you have died. It's important that if we want to live the new life, it seems like, well, this is a total contradiction. You're talking about living the new life, but Paul is saying here that we have died, and we know what Paul's thought is. Yes, you have died to self. You have died to the old ways of life. The scripture tells us what? We have been crucified. We've been crucified with Christ, and now having died, I can now live the new life. And it's just interesting how he words it. For, here's the basis of his argument, you have died and your life. This is that close proximity. You've died your life. You've died your life. But not only is this life yours, but notice the security of it. It is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. It's, it's totally and absolutely secure. Nothing can change it. Yeah. In verse 4, notice what he says. When Christ, who is your life, and not stop for a moment. What we have to understand here is if we're going to live this new life, in verse 3, realize that first, that our old life has died. Realize, again, that we have absolute security. And then, in verse 4, realize the superior nature of this life. Or we might even say the completeness of this life. It is absolutely complete. He says, when Christ, who is our life. So the question is, if you're going to live the new life, Christ must be the totality of your life, not partial. And we cannot have glances at Christ. It's a gaze. See, there's a difference between a glance and a gaze, isn't there? See, if you say set your mind, you just say glance. No, glance is just that. I, you may have at some point in time, um, you served on a jury, and I've served, actually it was a, a murder trial. Um, gang warfare, uh, sort of a, an initiation killing, which just, I mean, think about that for a moment. And when I was here in this background, and there were some guys that were involved in El, El Salvadorian gang, and essentially to initiate to kill someone. I mean, just think about it. it. Just, something's wrong with that. 
I mean, back in the day, growing up, you heard about some kids being a little gang, and, and it may be, hey, if you want to be in the gang, you have to go break such and such's window and run away from their house. I mean, that was it. That was sort of the nature of it. You did something like that. Or you had to call someone on the phone and call on the phone and hang up on them. It's like, you're in the gang now. Now, I mean, take a human life. What has happened to society? But one thing about it was this, was the eyewitness, right? If a person is going to say he's the one that did it, and then they're on the stand, if they ask, can you describe the suspect, and they say, oh, I just got a glance at them. What's, will that suffice in a court of law? Are you going to put someone to death on, a, on the basis of someone getting a glance at a person? But if I say yes, I had a chain gaze. I set my mind. I set my eyes on them, and I looked at them, and I can tell you everything about them. It's as if it lasted forever. This is the intensity that we have to have. So if Christ is our life, there must be an intensity that comes with that. And then he says, why well, I said the completeness of this life, he says, is revealed. Then you will be revealed with him in glory. Remember before I said that when it comes with us being in Christ, we've died with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him. We enjoy the exalted status with him and we will return with him. And this is what Paul is saying here. You, be, you will be revealed with him in glory. And that's a great statement to motivate us because it says, although I have many struggles here in this life, I know one day there's going to be this great revelation of me coming again with Christ. And even if it's just for the reality that as we come with him, we will be as he is. And so then he, he, he moves forward. He says, now, in view of all of this, what should be your response? And this is what we see next. So he's told us in verses 1 to 4, there's this privileged call to the new life. And then he's going to tell us in verses 5 through 11, there's a practical battle in the new life. So we have a privileged call, 1 to 4. Now there's a practical battle. And it only makes sense as Paul makes the transition into verse 5 that he has spent this time, this concentrated time, to help them understand their life because now he's giving them battle orders, if you will. He's commissioning them. And if you think about <clears throat> someone um, in battle itself, they have to go into that battle with first proper instructions. They have to go into that battle realizing, okay, here is the plan. Here are my munitions that I have. Here are the people that are backing me up. Here's the objective. If you don't have that, then most likely you may waver in the midst of the battle. What is interesting, I was just in, when I was reading um, in the book of Acts, um, the division that took place, again, I kind of had to pause for a moment, you know, the division that took place between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. And it says a sharp disagreement came between the two of them. And um, so I was thinking about that for a moment. And Paul deciding that he did not want John Mark because when they were earlier preaching, John Mark did not go with them in the ministry. But what happens? They split and they go their different ways. What Paul was essentially saying, I'm not sure if he's battle ready. Now, later on, Paul, John Mark proved himself what? Faithful. He was very necessary to him, if you will. Paul is telling us here 
that now if you look to Christ, you will be ready for this battle. Now let's, let's pay attention to what he says here in verse 5. Verse 5, therefore, so in light of these truths I've just shared with you, not only in verses 1 to 5, but everything that's been shared prior to that, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And really better translated, put to death the members of your earthly body. Put them to death. Why should I put them to death? Because remember, I have a new life. And this new life is going to be revealed. But what are the qualities of this new life? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What should we understand? First, we need to understand the command to kill sin. There's a command to kill sin. But what is the basis of this command? And I would say here, the basis of the command is this. In view of your new life that you've been raised, this life is hidden, you're going to be revealed. I command you to put this to death. You are new people, and you need to behave like new people. So there's a command that we kill sin. And there's also this. There's an under, we need to understand the character of sin. We're going to pay a little bit of attention to that. Understand the character of sin. And then thirdly, understand the motivation to kill sin. Understand the motivation. So the command itself, the character of sin, and then the motivation to kill sin. But first, let's just consider this command to kill sin. Well, it, it really is stated in that first word, therefore. So we understand the relationship to our spiritual death. Therefore, since you are now a people whose life is hidden with God, you are to put to death these lingering remnants of your past. You know, and sometimes I wish that, hope that, uh, when it comes to our past, that all of it could be taken away at that moment we came to faith. But all of us here today, there's still something that we're struggling with, are we not? At some point in time, we find ourselves somewhere in one of these epistles and say, that's me. We find ourselves in some vice that we're still battling and say, that's still me. I mean, there's certain things I got saved when I was at the University of Cincinnati and um, the Lord opened my eyes and there's certain things that just changed overnight in me. And here it was, now I got saved over 30 years ago and I still see some of the remnants of my past. Now the distance between them is much further than they were then, but nonetheless they still exist. Guess what? I'm not always as patient as I should be. Guess what? Sometimes my attitude is not what it should be. And at times I have to consider what are my motivations in doing this? Why am I really doing this? Is it with absolute purity that I'm doing this? All of us have something. And so we're in the midst of this battle. So Paul says, you need to kill this sin. And on what basis do we kill it? First, he's going to tell us already that you have died with Christ. Go back in chapter 2. Not only, so he says again, here's the basis that you should live this life. He tells us in chapter 3 that we, we have died, but he also told us in chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made us alive. And then he tells us in verse um, 20 
as well. In verse 20, we see it. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, this is no longer your life. Your life is now one that is heavenly directed. You've died. Why are you living this way? And then he says, you have died to the world, which is what we see in chapter 2, verse 20. The elementary principles of the world. The things uh, that have their basis in human imagination and invention. Whatever they may be. Uh, the world today is a world of pluralism. It wants to convince us, and sometimes it wants to convince us, that if we hold to the view that we do, which is Jesus Christ alone, we are backwards people, are we not? Would we be accepted in the world with that view? Would you be accepted at most universities with that view? What criticisms would you um, face if to say, I believe in the absolute truth of God's word, and I believe that Jesus Christ is singularly the savior of the world? We believe that. But the world tells us otherwise. And it wants to chide us if we have this view. But we have died to the world. Here's another thing. We need to understand this. We've died to the law. Romans chapter 7, verses 46, and then Galatians 2, 19. We've died to the law. This, the law no longer has any bearing over our lives. Now, the law had a benefit, did it not? The law drove us to the Lord Jesus Christ because the law was telling us that we were not sufficient in ourselves. We have also died to sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 2 to 12. Now we've died to sin. Now we can live this new life. So now we can realize this. We have died to the power of sin. We've died to the curse of the law. And we've also died to the direction of the world. But we need to understand something else. We should understand the intensity of the command, though. He says here, put to death. Now, it's interesting. It says, consider the members of your body. And initially, when I looked at it, I thought, okay, that's an interesting translation. Because it, Paul, Paul at times does use this word in considering. And when he would use it, he means, okay, in view of these truths, consider. That is, take it into account. Add it up. And at times, the word might even be used in an accounting sense. It, calculate it. Now that I presented you this truth, calculate it and now make a decision. Make an informed decision. But he's saying something here much stronger. He says, put it to death. Um, the great Puritan that said it very plainly that either we need to be putting sin to death or it will be doing what? Putting us to death. Have you ever noticed that sin doesn't play, play fairly? It doesn't give intermissions. It doesn't give you breaks. Sin comes with a bombardment. And then bombardment is to cause you to give way. So intensity has to be met with intensity. But understand the character of sin. What do I mean by the character of sin? Well, look at the wording itself. Go back to chapter 3. The character of sin here, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now notice the language that is used here. And a lot of the words are in the, the area of sexuality. So immorality, he says, impurity, he communicates. And then he tells us what? Passion, evil desire, and greed. But what's really important is that last statement, 
which amounts to idolatry. And what he is saying is that because you have these passions, some of you still may have these passions, ultimately when you strive for these passions, you're allowing them to replace your relationship with God and your passion for God and the beauty of God, and it all amounts to idolatry. So he's calling them all, it's idol worship. America, not just America, the world today. What is it that Americans, and not only Americans, but I can say Europeans, what is it they worship so much it is sexual expression? It's a God. You see it in every aspect of culture. And so at this time as well, he's saying all of these things, because what you're doing when you don't put them to death, you are substituting them for an abiding and deep and intimate relationship with God. You are saying to these things, your evil desires and your passions and immorality, that they are sufficient. Of course they are. It's only temporary. So immorality referring to any sort of sexual deviation. And impurity looking perhaps more specifically at the, we might even say, the dirtiness of it, if you will. Passions, which can be a good thing, but here passions used in the sense of a lust that one has. It can be uncontrollable, evil desires. Here are these motives that you have, and you want to express them sexually. And the interesting greed, why would greed be used in this context of these words? And I think greed is used in the context of these words that one's sexual desires, at least in this context, are not gratified. They're never going to be satisfied. And that's what can happen with the person. He says, you have to put this to death. But there's a reason that I need to do it. Notice that the motivation continues. Then we need to understand the motivation to kill sin. And notice he gives us the motivation. So not only do we understand the character of it, we see the intensity of the command, the command itself, but there must be a motivation. So now we come back to this word again about motivation. And what is... What's the motivation? Notice in verse 6. For, so here he says, here is the basis of my argument. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So what is the motivation here? The very wrath of God. So wait a minute. As a believer, I'm not going to undergo wrath, so why should wrath motivate me? I'm not going to experience the wrath of God. I've been, I've been saved from the wrath of God. Colossians told me that my certificate of debt has been taken away. And that certificate of debt, had I still had it, it would have led to the wrath of God, but now it's gone. So how can that be a motivation? How can God's wrath be a motivation? Because we always should be thinking about, yes, you will not experience the wrath of God, but what are the implications of the wrath of God? What do I mean by that? If God is so angry about these sins that his wrath will pour on the sons of disobedience, how much more should I avoid them? And if God's wrath is going to be poured on the sons of disobedience, and wait a minute, I'm no longer a son or daughter of disobedience. I'm a son or daughter of obedience. Now I've been raised with Christ. I'm going to be revealed with Christ. My life is hidden with Christ. I'm looking at things above 
This is inconsistent with my new life. I may never experience it, but all the implications of the reality that God's wrath is going to fall on people who practice these things. Why am I practicing things that God's wrath will fall on? This is not me. So let me behave differently is what he's saying. And he says, then a part of his rationale is as well. Not only does it reflect God's wrath, so we should be motivated. This angers God. Therefore, if it angers God, it should anger me and I should avoid it. And then a part of his rationale as well is this in verse 7. In them you also once walked when you were living in them. It's a part of your past. Not your present, not your future. So be consistent. And notice the transition he makes. But now, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And do not lie since you laid them aside with the old self and his evil practices. Now you have an opportunity to live differently. And it's interesting, what I love about the epistles in particular, um, Paul is identifying them not as some evil practices to themselves, that is, he's not saying uh, to those at Colossae, to those at, at Ephesus, or to those at, you know, Galatia. You know, there are people out there that sometimes express anger or wrath or malice or slander or abusive speech. There are people out there that lie. There are people out there that practice immorality or impurity or evil desires. He says, no, you need to put them aside. So he faces the reality that sometimes in the Christian life, Christians who are now children of obedience will sometimes be angry. They will show wrath. They will have malice in their heart. There will be slander and abusive speech. And this is a, a sad reality, but a reality nonetheless, that my work, and particularly being at the seminary and what I do for them and, and visiting churches and what I do with Grace Church and a part of our ministry to plant churches and start churches and help churches, I've gone to places where abusive speech has torn churches apart. Slander has torn churches apart. And you think about the intensity of the word slander, that which is used even of the devil, referring to him. Malice, that the intentions of one heart against a person has torn churches apart. People angry, so they're not addressing the anger of their heart. They're not replacing it with the virtues that we'll see later on in this passage, so now their anger builds up, and they haven't checked themselves. And now they have malice towards a person. There's indifference, and now they're torn apart. So then what happens is what Hebrews would say, a root of bitterness springs up among them, and they don't get rid of that root, and then it spreads everywhere, and then there's division. He says, put that all away. And weeds are ugly things, are they not? But did you know some weeds can be attractive, can't they? I mean, we in our, our house now, when we move to a different area, and, um, you know, California's in the middle. Of, we, we're still in the drought. And it's just where I live is already more deserty. It's outside of Los Angeles in an area called Canyon Country. And um, even drier out in that area. And they got us down to where you can only water your grass twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, for 10 minutes. And what's the point? I literally, no, I really, I just said, what's the point? I'm paying for nothing. 
And so I just stopped watering it because I'm thinking, why, why am I paying for 20 minutes a week when it's 115 degrees here in the summer? Because you, you water it for 10 minutes, and by 12 o'clock, it's all gone, right? So I just stopped watering it. And everything, everything literally just died in our yard, just died. And finally, I said, okay, we've got to do something about this. And uh, we did. Uh, one thing we did, we got fake grass. That's what we did. <laughs> and in one area, we did plant some things. And now we can water now. We put in the irrigate, a drip system in, and we can... And it's looking really nice now, at least on the perimeter. Here's the fake grass. All our neighbors are like, man, what did you do to your yard? Here, buddy, go fill it. Oh, man, it fooled me, right? <laughs> and now the, the landscaping looks really nice. But you notice what, now that we're watering, guess what's coming up? Weeds. There had been nothing in our yard for almost a year. And now these weeds are coming up. And some of them were mixed in with our roses. And I thought, is that a weed? Is it not? And I had to go in and pull it out by the roots. Weeds are popping up. Paul is saying, you need to get rid of those weeds in your heart. And if you don't think you have the potential for weeds, it's probably, it's probably because they're already there. Or they're hidden as something else. He says, put them all aside. I'm going to close with this thought. Um, I was, um, came across a plant, and I wish I could show it to you. Maybe later, I want you to see it. Um, when we, maybe like when we, tomorrow, because we, I, I want you to see the image. I wish I could give you the image of it. And I was traveling east to visit one of our churches and beautiful, it's like a, um, it's a shade of a purple, beautiful. I mean, it's attractive. It's very fragrant. It's, it's robust. It grows well. And I was noticing it and thought, wow, that's very attractive. But then I started to see it as I was driving along the highway. Literally, I thought, wow, it's also deadly. Y you would be driving along the freeway and you see these, you know, forest areas as I was in the east and it was, um, you know, cut through the forest. And I, all of a sudden I was noticing that these things are deadly. I mean, trees, I mean, huge portions of the forest area have been destroyed by it. And I thought, that's very interesting. And I asked the person, so, oh, yeah, that stuff, the moment it grows, it'll take over everything. And some people don't attack it right away because it, it's, it has a nice smell to it. And it's very attractive. Then all of a sudden, they may go away for a period of time, and it starts to eat up the life that's around it. And when I say eat it up, I'm going to show you this picture later. I mean, there were areas where it just it started up the tree, and it just sucked the life out of it. Because they didn't address it early enough. They didn't kill it. Paul is saying, look to Jesus Christ. Live for Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you need to put sin to death. And if you don't put it to death, it will cause the death of a vibrant Christian life. Now notice the qualifier. Nothing can take our life from us, but it can surely take away our joy 
and it can take away our testimony and it can take away our effectiveness. So we need to increase our vision of Christ. We need to cherish Christ and who he is and his beauty. I think we need to honor his death and the price that he paid for us. I think if you're going to be motivated by a vision of Christ, you need to study Christ and who he is. You need to accept the lordship of Christ over your life. If he's seated at the right hand of God, that means that he is lord of the universe and he's lord of your life as well. You need to do this. You need to avoid the fragrance, the false fragrance of sin, the passing pleasures of sin. And if you're going to put sin to death, it means you don't push your spiritual limits. Sometimes people get themselves in trouble because they want to get as close as they can to the edge. You, you don't nourish your past. Sometimes people don't put sin to death because they're nourishing their past as opposed to making a clean break from the past. If you're going to put sin to death, you have to consider the consequences of your actions. And, and we live in a world today where people don't think about the consequences. They don't think about what may happen. Man, as a leader, that's one way that I can help put sin to death. I think if I fail, if this happens to me in my life, then what are the consequences of those actions? And I'm not talking about losing a position. I'm not talking about if, if, if I ever did something that was deserving of it, and, and I appreciate where I work. At Grace Community Church, they would clear my office out in 24 hours. The same thing with the seminary. I appreciate that. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, okay, what damage does that do to all those students that knew me? I don't want to be another name. Because, see, I've had to do that with a professor. I remember when. I don't want a Mike Sprott to say, you yeah, remember Hargrove who came to us, you know, in November. We can't have him back anymore. I don't want my kids and my kids who are at the master's, well, two of my, uh, my sons are at the master's university, and often they'll come to me and say, well, somebody, somebody knew you and at the college, and they knew you here. And someone will say to me, I know your sons, and you've done a great job with your sons. I don't want my kids to face the embarrassment of, oh, yeah, he, his dad messed up. His dad blew it. His dad didn't kill sin. His dad didn't have a vision of Christ that motivated him. See, if you're going to put sin to death, then you also have to replace it with something else. You have to strive for virtue. Some people, see, what was happening at Colossae, the church at Colossae? They were just fighting against the flesh, but they were not striving towards the spirit. You can fight the flesh and fight the flesh and say no and no and no, and you can put all sorts of barriers around yourself, but until you say yes to Christ and yes to being spiritual and yes to these things, it's going to be very frustrating. You're going to lose the battle. A vision of Christ. You look to him. You realize who you are in Christ. And then you say to yourself, if that is true, then. And now let me put sin to death. And all of us here today, we know, you know your particular area, the areas that you've got to, you have to focus on, the area where you need to concentrate your, your efforts, and do that for the glory of God. Amen? Father, we thank you for your mercy that you give us and would ask that um, you guide us, um, provide 
your grace to live out this life that the world so wants us to abandon. But you will never abandon us. So help us to never abandon your cause. In Christ's name, amen.